I'm Angus. And I'm Ray. And we're the Kirby's, Kirby's Kids. Excelsior! Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening to Lone Wolf and Cub, Volume 1, The Assassin's Road. This is Part 2. If you are just now listening in, I'd recommend you head over to Season 1, Episode 62, The Kids Talk, Lone Wolf and Cub, Volume 1, The Assassin's Road. In our first part, Ray and I covered a multitude of topics, which included Jack Kirby's love of collage in our Kirby kernel, the creative duo of Lone Wolf and Cub and their collective comics journey. Then we headed into a little comics archaeology and did a reverse archaeology dig, if you will, in how Lone Wolf and Cub influenced television, movies, graphic novels, and other comics in the 80s and 90s. Then we delved into the first four stories within this volume and pick up now with the remainder of our stories, review of the art, some little role play game inspiration, and recommendations for our readers. We hope you enjoy. What did you make of the fifth story, Suyo School's Zambato? Okay, well, once I got over the title <laughs> right yeah because i'm like okay what the heck are we and then i went back to the glossary and i was like okay zambato refers to that suito school refers to that style of sword fighting which i didn't initially grasp onto but then once i did i'm like oh okay yeah they're bringing in he's bringing in a very traditional bit of storytelling right uh, japanese folk storytelling here in the idea of schools and allegiances to schools and fighting styles associated with schools and yeah yeah and then the eventual friction that sometimes can take place between those and the other thing i found fascinating was the insult that was made to the passing samurai and just that exchange back and forth was rich i love that yes <laughs> Another bit of uh, low lowbrow comedy. <laughs> a little bit of lowbrow comedy here as uh, Daigoro takes a leak on uh, ac- accidentally entirely, right? On <laughs> on another gentleman who takes offense, and uh, yeah, <laughs> he gets a little bit of a shower there. Yes, right, exactly. And then, of course, the the duel here after actually deals with that Zambato word, which apparently is a stroke mastered by the practitioners of the school of swordsmanship. So we're talking about this this swordsmanship style, but then this particular stroke and how it is applied. And I thought that was, again, rather rich. Well, and, and the whole story is a master stroke, right? Because we it's so obvious that bringing in another trope here, which is having injured somebody's pride, if nobody backs down, it's going to go to blood. And it's almost Icelandic saga <laughs> like in its inevitable momentum, right? These Japanese stories of once somebody's been, once their honor has been tarnished <laughs> or, or they've been insulted publicly, that there's just no backing down from that until somebody loses face or is dead. And so his master stroke here is to start the whole thing with an insult that can be played off as an innocent accident and that he won't and doesn't feel like he should have to apologize for, right? His kid uh, taking a leak off of a little bluff and hitting a, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, it's a masterstroke. Bingo. Well, well said. Well played. 
So, all right, here comes my favorite story. I I was about to say, here we are waiting for the rains. Yes. So this one to me illustrates something that I said earlier about even though we're kind of driving for tragedy and things end in ruin and death, there are moments along the way that are funny, like as in the last story. And there are moments that are beautiful, right? One, One perfect moment. And there's a sense that that's all we're doing life is one perfect moment. That sustained happiness is something that nobody should hope for. It's kind of a vulgar hope, like that you're being greedy to hope for some form of sustained peace or happiness. And so what we have here is, I'm getting a little abstract, but what we have here is a woman in a nunnery who is waiting on her lover who's been gone and he said that he would return to her with the rains, right? And she is sick. Um, We don't know exactly why she's sick, whether she's just sick from missing him or she actually has an illness, right? I don't think they say, do they? Uh, They allude to it. When I saw her there and based on the, no, you've been here two long years, and this is the first time I've seen you smile, my dear. So it's implied that if she's been there two whole years and she's being waited on, that she's got some sort of ailment. Whether it's mental depression or physical, something is binding her to to this monastery. Well, that's right. I think that, well, so she's frozen in time because that's where her lover will find her. And that's where she's expecting in return. And she will not give up hope. Whereas the rest of the world has moved on. And so that's why I think it's interesting they leave the question open whether she is physically ill or just psychologically ill, depressed. But she's clearly sad, you know, distraught. Daigoro becomes a little bit of a beacon in her life, right? And I don't know if we should spoil the ending of this one or not. I kind of want to just because it's such a bit, boy, it's, uh, I don't know, it's brutal, isn't it? We won't. We aren't going to say the ending of this one. But but basically, let's just say it doesn't end well. <laughs> no, I literally just, I stopped dead in my tracks after reading that and said, wow. But there is a moment where she gets sort of everything that she wanted amidst nothing going the way that she hoped, right? <laughs> and that's, well, and to me, that's, that's what I'm saying about this sensibility that you get perfect moments, you don't get a perfect life. And that's what this story is about. All right, uh, moving on. This one, uh, this was the other one I said, it kind of distanced me. The Eight Gates of Deceit. Basically, our hero fights a bunch of uh, really proficient sword swinging naked women, right? And I wasn't distanced that I was disgusted by it or anything. It just, it's, it's very uh, figural. It's very, it's a very straightforward storytelling, kind of a heroic feat, a gauntlet of, of danger kind of story. I don't know. What did you make out of this one? So once I got the gist of what this story was about, I began to see the purpose behind. So again, we had mentioned before the theme of these powerful women throughout these stories. These are again, powerful women. They're assassins. They're there to lure men in and provide them with a false sense of security. They do that through their charms, how they physically look and man, are they proficient with their weapons? Oh my word. So what's interesting about this was I was reading an article where the first women's liberation meeting in Japan happened in 1970. Wow. Okay. Right. It is very, that's why I said, this is very shocking to think that this was done in 1970. It feels really, really modern in a lot of ways to me, but both clearly it's a, it's a here, it's a um, historic like period piece, right? So it has that in terms of being dated, but it's not dated. Like it's, it's not of its time in the same way that obviously it clearly was, but it doesn't feel like something that is locked away because it's of its time. It feels like it's of this time as well. I do think that the storytelling here kind of echoes some of the storytelling and that he has, uh, the writer, Koiki, has 
kind of a Henry Miller love of the twist, right? Yeah, and so this is one of those, yet another one that has kind of a twist ending. And you start, at this point, I feel like you're starting to expect them. And, it, I, you know, you were waiting for another shoe to drop, surely, in this one, were you not? Absolutely, I was. And I really felt the author was setting this up for a continuing storyline for future issues or volumes. So this was perhaps the first wave of these female assassins. If I were to read more volumes, for me, expectation as a reader would be, hey, I'm going to encounter more of these women trying to entrap our Ronin here. Basically, he's a marked man. I viewed this as, because knowing that there's several volumes, that this was the first installment of these type of assassins who would be tracking down or trying to lure in in character. I think there's an, one other important thing going on here, which is in a lot of storytelling, the especially Western storytelling, the weakness of a man is sometimes a woman. Right. So, you know, Samson has his Delilah and Adam has his Eve. And that's a, you know, super sexist, often misogynistic, probably not, you know, <laughs> something that I hope we've somewhat gotten past and being predictable that way. But when we start this story, I'm, you know, I was wondering, I was like, is this what we're going to find out that his weakness is women that he can't, that he'll pull his stroke at the last second because he's confronted with these lethal beauties? Nope. Nope. He it doesn't have that weakness. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I enjoyed. I was like, thank you for not walking down that tried and true path, right? Agreed, agreed. It was nice to see him be the professional that he is. Yeah. Okay, uh, number eight is the longest and most involved story in the volume. Quite good. Very much like a spaghetti Western, right? So he he um, he and the cub, yeah, wings of the bird, fangs of the beast. He, he rolls into town. It's, it's a springs, a hot springs town. And they have a little bit of trouble actually getting there because the bridge to the place is guarded by a couple ruffians who he basically shows up and marches on into the town. Very clear as soon as he walks into the town that the, that it is in the grip of some very bad people very bad people and in fact i feel like we should say trigger warning here there is an on-screen rape that the hero watches and does not uh, immediately vindicate that was disturbing it was it was hard to take it was that was disturbing it disturbed me even though this was my favorite story it was brutal but i think this became my favorite story because the fact that the brutality and just the the evil nature of what was going on in this town just made this outcome of the story that much more compelling and the first thing i thought of when i started reading this was pale rider and that is one of my favorite westerns that's right it, it, it definitely feels like that right it's gonna paint it red uh, so, <laughs> but I, I do, I will say, having said that about the, the rape, it was an integral part to the story, I felt. It sets the tone. It builds this strange anticipation because he really withholds for a lot of the story. You're thinking, when is he going to bust loose and just cut these guys into carrot slices? You know, you just you hunger for that because of this opening scene. It was done well, it was done pretty tastefully as much as you can. That's a horrible way to say it. It was done with some sensibility and with some with some care, given that it's such a horrific thing. And, you know, it felt like it was fate or something. And yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that it's not still hard. To, I mean, if I read it again, it'd be hard to read again, but it's hard to think about. Yeah, I would actually go quickly buy it just then wanting to get to the vindication section. Yeah, it'd be a disservice though to do that, but I agree with you. It's, it's uncomfortable, but I do think it's an integral part of the story and perhaps, you know, if there's a time and a place for something like that, maybe this was it. Okay, so uh, why was this your favorite? Because of the I have to say fearless nature with both the visual 
storytelling and the actual plot unfolded it was no it was no holds barred and at the end of this story i was up on my feet applauding the outcome it was almost a cathartic relief like oh thank god i'll have to say i really wanted to see the prostitute in the next story though although the, the next story has kind of a time shift and so it's not, it's not like you would but it indeed does and and we actually differ in, in opinion on this particular story, specifically where it was placed, and this being this being the last story, and, and mind you, I uh, don't get me wrong, I love in media res when movies start out that way, when books start out that way. I get it, and it can be highly effective. However, the fact that the origin story ended up being the ninth at the very end can do one of two things for a reader. In one instance, it can be a great reveal, building up all of this anticipation through the first eight stories and wonderment about, wow, who are these dynamic characters? How did they come to be? Or, in my particular instance, being the impatient person I am, it's going, tell me this story first, and... I'm still going to love the other eight stories here, but I really want to know where you guys got started. And that's what this Assassin's Road is all about. Yeah, this is definitely the reveal. And it also explains how the main character feels so free to put his son into dangerous situations with him. He sort of leaves that choice up to fate in the beginning and the child has a choice as much as a baby can have a choice and is guided to pick up the sword instead of the toy. And I will say this, I'm going to make my argument for why I think this story is is good at the end. In writing, they tell you, show, don't tell. I'm going to drift to the side here for a second to make my point. Let's compare the original Star Wars trilogy, episodes four, five, and six. In episode four, when our villain comes onto the screen, Darth Vader has captured a ship He's blasted his way into, you know, the princess's Corvette. He is choking people and threatening people and he's intimidating and doing bad things, right? So, okay, clearly he's also wearing a black suit and the whole bit. So we get that. Now let's go to the prequels that were done later. When we first see Darth Maul, we know he's evil because he's a face painter. He paints his face like the devil. He doesn't do anything evil. He doesn't strangle any babies. He doesn't chop any villagers in half. We just know he's a Sith Lord and Sith Lords are evil. That to me is the difference between showing and telling. And I feel like in this one, we get the chance to learn about the main character, Ito, and for that matter, Daigoro. They become nuanced and leveled and interesting and problematic, frankly, characters, because they do some horrible things seemingly without a conscience. And then we learn where they started. To me, I felt like if you'd reverse that, then you're by telling ahead of time what they're going to be, you'd set all the assumptions and nothing would surprise you. And so that's my argument. I don't know that I'm right, I think a lot of people would like to have had that story at the beginning, but for me, it was perfect. I think you make a very compelling argument as to why it should be here at the end. I don't think it, in one shape or form, detracts from the reading experience. So let me get that clear for folks. This is truly me nitpicking with regard to preference on things, particularly when, in this last story, you get the mention of the demon's path, the word that Ito then associates with his journey. I would have loved to have had that and had that context than reading some of the other stories. And I actually went back and read some of the other stories after that reveal and also the reveal of as he's about to kill one of folks that he's encountered 
actually recognizes him from his past life. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They, they seed it in a way that is, is a little bit befuddling until you find out the answer. Now, here's another thing I wonder, though. So sometimes an artist doesn't know the origin story until they've written the character for a while. I'll give an example of where I think this has been done poorly. In the Faffer and the Grey Mouser stories by Fritz Leiber, it's, you know, a sword and sorcery fiction. The original first published stories were not the stories that you read first today. In fact, the original stories were written, I think, almost 20 years before the origin stories. And when he reorganized everything in the 70s, he put the origin stories first. And he actually took another story, the Mouser's origin story. So if you know Fafford and the Grey Mouser, Fafford's a northern barbarian, swings a big sword, jovial. Mouse is a, a glum, but sometimes tricksy, lithe thief character, right? We get both of their origin stories. Well, the origin story for the Mouser was originally not intended to be the Mouser. It's about an, an acolyte whose master is uh, killed and then he seeks revenge and toys with black magic and, and almost gets burned, but somehow gets redeemed at the end of it. And Liber took that story that he had written for another character and basically pasted the Mouser onto it to give him his origin story. And he added the motivation of that the two had these loves that they lost early in their lives. And then a lot of their further adventures is explained by them chasing their lost loves. Well, that adds a layer to the other stories that wasn't there in the beginning. And I think it does it a disservice. I mean, that might actually be a good thing. But in this case, I don't think it is. I think I liked, enjoyed, uh, as when I read these, I read them out of order originally. And, a good, and I enjoyed getting to know the characters as wandering, picaresque rogues before I found out that they had these you know, a coming of age stories where they, uh, you know, became bitter. Where, where was I going with that? <laughs> oh, I, oh, my question had to do with, you know, Fritz Leiber, uh, Leiber clearly didn't know what the origin stories were but when he started writing the characters. I don't know. I suspect these guys, uh, Koiki, had this origin story in mind all along, but I don't know that. Maybe he didn't know the origin story before he wrote, you know, eight other stories. This origin story fits so well. It dovetails well. As where with the Fritz Leiber story, particularly Mausers, it shows it does not fit. It does not fit. He was trying to shoehorn something in, which just did not work. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. <laughs> I agree. This one, uh, and like you said, he because Ito is recognized in an earlier story, clearly by that point, they had an understanding of where he came from. Right. So I feel like they probably did have this whole story planned out ahead of time. So the artist chose to stick it at the end because that's it. I mean, that is an interesting question, right? If they didn't know the story until they'd written it, maybe they just put them in publication order. But if they knew the story and chose to put it at the end, that's different. That's an artistic choice rather than just evolution of character. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, so much to say. I feel like we've, I feel like we've, um, I mean, let's hit the art a little bit, don't you think? I mentioned that this is kind of the perfect marriage of East and West, Sumi Inc. and comic book lines and lettering. I don't know that there's a lot else to say about it. It's beautiful. People are often kind of formalized in a way that they almost feel a little stiff to me, but I don't think that's a criticism. It's, it's part of, it's like exudes a bit of culture, I think. The action's not stiff. And, and now here's what, here's what I was going to say about what Frank Miller learned from this. And, and I think East versus Western sensibilities and storytelling. So serialized storytelling in West, and I, you know, maybe I'm speaking above my understanding here. So you know, take this with a grain of salt. But in, in Western storytelling, I feel like the, the serialized nature of Western storytelling is somewhat tied up with the invention of film. And especially, I can't remember the gentleman that did all those motion studies way back where you have like frames of a horse running and frames of a human walking and, you know, uh, some of the earliest motion picture studies. And you look at Golden Age comics and some of the earlier comics, and what you see is the serialization of 
action, right? So you take an action and you divide it up into 10 frames and that's, you tell that action out over 10 frames. In contrast here, what we have is images of fragmented time. We have snapshots, right? So you get the sense of, instead of taking this, uh, instead of if the, if the Western version is a, you know, a foot long piece of yarn that's cut into segments of unequal lengths. This is a piece of yarn that's cut into a bunch of segments and we're only showing you every third one or something. Okay. And to me, it's a different type of storytelling and you need to both read the frames that you're seeing and the gaps in between the frames and the pacing of the story is all about when, when the story is slower, there is uh, longer gaps between the frames. And when the story's faster, there's very short gaps between the frames because time's you know flying. But whenever you see a frame, typically it's still a, a just a few, it's a second or two in time, right? In the fast versions, it's literally a fragment of a second. In the slower versions, it, it might allow for uh, you know a bit of back and forth dialogue. But I feel like when, when this thing speeds up, you're like watching the story through a picket fence while you ride by on a bicycle going in the opposite direction. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> like you're seeing glimpses of the story and you know you're missing bits, right? That the pickets are hiding pieces. But because, oddly enough, because, um, you know, the, the, the form of gestalt storytelling like that is like sort of the faster you go, the less those gaps matter. And so it becomes more fluid. And that's, that's a different way of thinking about motion pictures, right? Well, look, it, it, let's, let's just go to those flip books as a kid where you would go ahead and ruffle the pages. And all of a sudden, each one of those illustrations would then come to life in motion. Right. That's an excellent example of the kind of Western version of that, right? Because every fragment of the motion is represented. Here, it would be like having, you know, every third page and then trying to do the flip. It doesn't flip, partially because he's changing angles and doing all kinds of stuff. So you have to... Your, your brain has to process what happened between the last session as a fragment and this fragment, right? Between the last frame and this frame. Yes. I also feel he does an effective job of, like, here I am going to go ahead and put it in a cinematic context of doing Jaws. And what I mean by this is the following. Before Bruce the Shark ever enters into the picture, it is a far more gruesome film because it's left up to the mind's eye to dream up what in the world is this beast that is terrorizing the speech community? So I think some of the illustrations in this graphic novel are amazing when you just get that sweeping motion, maybe some blood splatter going, and they're not actually showing the act itself. Absolutely. Again, that's right. Your, your, um, your brain is supp supplying what's happening off screen, but that isn't really as interesting as... So what's more interesting, the head toppling off or the stroke that takes it? And I think that's what our artists have, have decided too. And I agree. You know, you get to see the sword in motion is more interesting than the result of the strike. And uh, yeah, and so that's what we get. And I think it's very cool. Hey, I was able to pull here your reference, and that would be Edward Muybridge. He was the English photographer who pioneered the work in the studies of motion, which then led to motion picture projection. He's the one that captured the gallop, the horse movements and all of that. Right. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, which kind of led to animation and different, you know, stop motion animation and all that. So, so but this is unlike that. It, what we have here is, is a bunch of postcards thrown onto the table or, you know, Polaroids, I guess, thrown onto the table of different moments in this story. And 
I love the fact that it's told through moments like this. And because it's told through, told through moments, you get, one, I think that enables that slow reveal of the backstory, but it also allows the story to focus sometimes on sounds, like the, the schnick of a, you know, of a sword coming out of its sheath or omens, like a bird flying up that represents, you know, the beginning of action, right? Like the birds, like, like let me get out of here. There's something's going down, you know? <laughs> and those, I love those little just, I, I think that I'll tell you, who captured this really well in some ways is uh, uh, Jindy uh, Tartoski when he did Samurai Jack, the cartoon. I feel like he really captured a lot of the sensibility of these in a, in, you know, in a kind of a cartoony way. The beautiful scenery, uh, momentary actions, very little dialogue, focus on sounds and, and, you know, fragmentary images, but clearly influenced by this, no question. Well, I kind of, I kind of got in a rush there and really, honestly, I spilled everything I wanted to say about the art and the story, but I am really impressed with this. And I think it's just a, an incredible experience to read. I wholeheartedly endorse all of your comments, felt very similarly. You know, I am a sucker for landscapes and anytime there was a lush landscape in this book, I fell in love with it. And hence my constantly saying, wow, did you see that one? That that one, again, looked like a beautiful block print of a landscape. It was amazing. Just the level of detail was phenomenal. Yeah, there's an, there's an interesting thing there. That's a, that's a great point because like, uh, so in these woodblock prints that you're referring to, a lot of times these gigantic landscapes, they'll often have very tiny people in one little corner of them. Like the, the one that everybody thinks of the wave, right? Which see the, the big curling fingered wave that's coming across there. There's a boat in there with people in it, but you don't really notice it, <laughs> you know? And there's a lot of, a lot of the scenes like that where man's man is small in comparison to nature, right? The grandiose, majestic sprawl of nature. Man is, is uh, temporal and uh, violent and lives a short life, whereas nature is ongoing and unfazed and, well, not these days, but <laughs> yeah, essentially like is bigger, bigger than the, the people in the story. And it's, it's almost like it takes the place instead of comic relief, it takes the place of kind of a relief, doesn't it, to see those big scenes? It's a breather. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. Oh, it, not only is it a breather, but it's also a reminder to, although these actions are really breathtaking, and some of the scenes are quite disturbing, that there is a wider world out there that all of this is being taking place in. And that this is truly just a snapshot of the events as we are chronicling the travels of this young baby and Ronan. Well put. And who would you hand this comic to? I know we're going to have to ask the question here about audience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, well, first, it's, it's an adult audience. This is indeed an adult, so no doubt about that. I would hand this in front of anyone who loves any sort of martial arts film, enjoys the Asian and Far Eastern mythology and sword play, and is into Shogun, anything relating to samurais and feudal Japan for sure. I also think this would appeal to, and you might find this a little little strange or maybe not, if you're into action buddy cop films, I think you'll like this because you do have the comedy. You've got the seriousness and the violence. And if you enjoy taking a journey, that sense of adventure and encountering new people and situations and challenges for your two protagonists... You'll, you'll love this thing. Well, it's, it is, you know, it's a brew of, of competence, surprise, humor, action, 
right? It's it's got all those elements that you know, the, and the buddy buddy comedy is that's a good that's a good take. I like that. But having established, I think we've established this is an eighteen plus plus comic, right? Like you get, get, I wouldn't hand it to somebody under eighteen, and I would want to somebody to be mature enough to understand that, like for instance, some of the problematic scenes that we brought up were there for a reason, and, and it's not just uh, the author's not just trying to shock you, and would know how to take that and 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 feel suitably uncomfortable and pained by those scenes, right? Yeah. So so it needs some maturity. So let me ask you this, women, I'm wondering how I feel about handing this, my, my wife hates like super violent things. So I'm not gonna use my wife as an example, but uh, you know, I have uh, women friends who I feel like, you know, like action films and things like that. And I'm thinking what, hey, I'm going to hand this to them. How are they going to react to this? Will they, will they love this? Will they hate it? I feel like they're going to love it. I also do. But if I had any hesitation or reservation handing this over to them, yet I, I still thought they would appreciate it. Maybe perhaps I would put Lady Snowblood in front of them first because there you still have the same level of violence, but you have that female hero. Yeah, the protagonist, right? I, I agree. I would also feel a little uncomfortable handing this to, to somebody to say, here, I've discovered this for you. You should, right? I don't want to be like the giver of that. It would. I think it's something that, that it would be better if women discovered on their own. I don't know how much of a following this comic has among female comic readers women who read comics it's it's an interesting question for me i know that within the comics community manga is really well balanced there are a lot of female audience members reading manga and just from the mere fact that this is foundational to that particular school within comics i almost feel out of foundational obligation this should be a must read regardless of gender, regardless of sex, regardless of persuasion, because it is such a highly referenced and influential work. I am going to balance that opinion, though, and say that, like, well, I think if women read this and really connected to it, I, it wouldn't surprise me. On the other side of that, it is very action-oriented. It is, like I said, it does have a male protagonist. The women, as, well, really anybody other than the than the male protagonist, don't often end up well in these. <laughs> and so it might be a bit frustrating, too. So I, I, that's why I said it's an open question for me. I really do wonder... I would like to see women read this and get their reactions to it. Just to say like, okay, what did you love about it? What did you hate about it? What did I miss? Right? Like as, um, you know, an, an unapologetic dude, <laughs> like, like it's, I am who I am. Like uh, what's, <laughs> what am I not getting here that I should be getting? I would also find that fascinating too. Agreed. And hey, I, I've got a question for one is along the influence side of the house and specifically over into tabletop role because this came out in the seventies and was so in influential into the films and culture of the time what role do you think this particular work could play in having inspired already existing rpg if any that may take elements of this and utilize it in it or what maybe could be used now in someone's gameplay that you take away from these group of stories. Sure. I kind of feel like maybe there actually was a lone, lone wolf and cub role-playing game, but I don't know that. I'd have to research that. I don't know that as... I mean, there, are, there have been quite a few role-playing games that have tried to do the Eastern thing. And sometimes they devolve into Orientalism, right? And um, kind of westernizing things in a, not such a great way. I feel like 
Chinese martial arts has influenced RPGs more. So Feng Shui and um, Chen and uh, there's a couple other, can't remember the name of the other one I'm trying to think of now, but th- there's been a couple role-playing games that lean heavily on the Hong Kong action flicks and uh, just uh, Chinese folklore in general. So I feel like that's been more influential than this comic. Having said that, I feel like we're, uh, we can A, learn some lessons from this one and B, since the advent of you know, the early to mid 2000s when narrative games have kind of come into their own. Some people call them story games. I I think this one's ripe for, this would be a great one to do with a, you know, kind of more somatic uh, storytelling type game. But here's some lessons I learned from this one. One, what you said about the landscapes is important, like breathers, right? So if if your game is going to be concentrated on like what the character's doing and the actions um, and there's, you know, all these tight interactive scenes, whether they're political or combat or whatever, it's nice to have, uh, you know, not to shorthand the journey from places to place. Like Tolkien was really good at this. Some people hate him for it, but you know, he would, he would stop and paint the scene and, and tell you what the, what the land looks like, make you take a breath. And I kind of like that. So that's a, that's a little lesson we could learn. The pacing is a lesson we could learn. I think, especially in the way that this graphic novel describes combat in images. You know, it's it's uh, there's a lot of role players who, when they get to the table and you get into a fight, you know, it's in typical fantasy. It's you run into some goblins or something like that, and everybody draws swords. And by the third round, nobody's saying jump forward and swing my sword up over my head and cleave down into his shoulder. Uh, you know, people are saying, uh, okay, I swing at the goblin on the left, right? Or I swing I swing at the one who's been wounded and it quickly becomes shorthanded and you know anytime you can return to this moment just even a fragment and one of the one of the best phrases that gms have at their disposal these days is what does that look like right or or what does that look like on screen even sometimes we'll say so when somebody's uh, it says well, i take a swing and you could say well, what does that look like and you make them give you an impression you know and, and be cool right give them a chance to be cool give you a cool visual for what they're doing and that it doesn't just apply to combat it applies to anything right and that a character is taking action and role playing so that's that's my takeaways cool for me this book conjured three thoughts on role playing games the first was one that i bought as a kid and that was oriental adventures from advanced dungeons and dragons so first edition done by zeb cook and all other than the actual title, which is offensive, you look at the book itself, and there's actually in the content between the front and back some very reverential treatment done on the myths, lores, and legends behind various different cultures, whether it be Japanese, Chinese, Korean, you know, East Indian, you name it. Oh, I think what's on display there. So so let's put a date to that. It was probably around 1980, wasn't it, when that came out? Yeah, I, I believe the book was finally, it was being worked on in the early 80s. Okay, so so mid to late, mid to early 80s probably. Okay, and I think what you see, so this is, you know, 11 years after Lone Wolf and Cub, got written but probably who knows when it got to the states i'm not sure when people first started seeing it so the influences they would have had at that time would have been something like that but also the shaw brothers martial arts flicks you know that that was on late night black belt theater television right so so what's on display there in oriel and adventures is both the love of all of that and the lack of understanding of all of that right hence the title and all this so i don't think we can i think when we take offense now it's it's with not understanding that this was it was out of pure love and that they just didn't you know like people we didn't have the internet you know you couldn't just go research all this stuff 
uh, <laughs> it was like, it was much harder to learn this and to get credible sources. And a lot of the sources that you would read were also misinformed. And so drawing these fine distinctions between, well, what, what, what for us are fine distinctions, right? Between um, different cultures in, in Eastern Asia. For us, it's like, you know, the difference between somebody from Kentucky and somebody from Michigan is, is obvious, right? <laughs> but, the di- but the difference from somebody from, you know, South Korea and North Korea is like, or, or uh, China and even Japan, like at that time in the 70s, we didn't really know much different. We, I didn't know, you know, <laughs> I didn't understand where all this was taking place. I was just a kid and it was all I knew. It was really cool. Yeah, exactly. And the majority of my exposure to that entire section of the world culturally was either food I was putting in my belly or Kung Fu theater I was watching on TV as a kid. There you go. Yeah, right. I mean, people, people just don't. You have to go back in context. I don't, shoot, I don't remember the first time I had Chinese food. It may not have been till like, you know, maybe shortly before college. So like, it was probably mid 80s before I had Chinese food, right? Um, you were, I, I lived in the middle, I lived in the Corn Belt in Indiana, right? <laughs> right. And although I grew up in a rural area of uh, South Jersey, actually the garden portion of the Garden State, I was only about a 45-minute ride in then into Philadelphia with a thriving Chinatown. Yeah, and you had some military influence too. So that that like you know, so you you're you're among people who've traveled a lot, and you're in more of an Eastern Coast where there's more influences. Got to remember, these are people writing Oriental Adventures. There are a bunch of people from Wisconsin who. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right snowed in and, and uh, watching grainy films uh late night on television that they can't pause rewind and or record <laughs> yeah and looking at either their uh you know all their volumes of uh, encyclopedia britannica world book quick references to then key off of visiting libraries it's so true isn't it it's like you know, just the wealth of resources now make make everybody look stupid uh, make everybody 30 years ago look stupid. But the truth is, it's, it just wasn't easy to be woke. Yeah, right. It was not. So the second influence that hit me over in the game side of the house was I remembered being in a gaming store while I was in college and I saw on the shelf the Lone Wolf and Cub game. It was a board game. And I remember like a lot of cards being featured on it from Mayfair Games. And this must have been in like the late 80s, early 90s. So obviously by this time, the graphic novel had finally hit the States. There was a trend going with respect to consciousness of, wow, this foundational work is being appreciated here now in the West. In addition to the films for people who was into into the martial arts films of the 70s, also having garnered attention and going, wow, this looks really interesting. This looks really cool. And it indeed pulled much of the original art from the comics and instilled it into the game. I still have yet to play the game or ever own the game, but I just remember that being on the shelf and going, okay, we've reached this kind of status surrounding this particular work. I can picture that cover, and I think that's the one I thought might have been a role-playing game, but you're right. I, I, I do remember that now. Now, in modern age, the first thing that popped, Legend of the Five Rings, and maybe that's just stereotypical of the first thing you think of in an RPG community standpoint, but that one has always hit me as going, okay, well, if I were to venture into something, trying to look for some sort of authenticity, I may start heading over in that direction. I don't find it, but it has always looked very intriguing to me since it's fairly well-centered in feudal Japan, to my understanding. You know what one I'm going to name? The Mountain Witch. You ever heard of The Mountain Witch? Okay, so that was an early story game, very well thought of, four characters traveling up 
uh, a sacred mountain, I believe. It's been a long time since I've had a look at it. But the interesting thing about that was they're all kind of faded in different ways. So you have draw a card at the beginning that gives you, uh, I'm, I'm butchering this for people who know it. Um, you'll have to go kind of look at it probably, but um, it, it gives you a, like a hidden agenda or hidden fact that you can reveal at some point during play that entangles your lives and usually brings about tragedy. And uh, I think as far as storytelling goes, that was one of the earliest attempts to get that kind of sensibility of fate and the fatalistic and the, the beauty of the journey into role-playing, get, get the story elements there. So the Mountain Witch, that's a, that's a pretty cool one. I think you can still find it, you know, probably a drive through RPG, uh, you know, as a PDF or something. Very cool. That sounds like a rather thoughtful approach. It is. It's a one-shot. It's meant for, it's meant for one-off play. Right. And it tells the story that it's going to tell, which is it's about a journey and about what you do on the journey. Loyalty and uh, trust. Actually, it's trust and betrayal of trust. Right. But of course, then the variations on that are endless. It's uh, like it's a bad idea to have a I mean, good grief. If we're going to judge that. Then every every movie that's come out in the last 20 years, is, you know, it's just uh, there, there are formulas that we follow. And within those formulas, we can still discover new things. And this that's an example, I think, of, uh, uh, well, you know, a story game that that both structured and, and also very um, generative. Like you can have all kinds of different experiences within that structure. Outstanding. Outstanding. And as we're wrapping this up, do you have any last thoughts that you want to leave the listener as far as an experience in reading Lone Wolf and Co. Yeah, I do have one last thought, which is I think this is a graphic novel for people who aren't necessarily into graphic novels. If you're not a graphic novel person, but you do like Edo Period or Shogun or, you know, um, and just black and white um, Sumi ink paintings or, you know, any of that, I would encourage you to pick this up. It's a nice, it's done in very short, uh, like, like each story is very short. You can read it in just a few minutes. It's very digestible. Right. And beautiful and interesting and leveled. And, uh, you know, it's not it's not it, it does all that without being uh, what is it's deep without being complex uh, to, to absorb. Right. And folks, I could not have said that any better. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Outstanding. Ray, I want to thank you again, my friend, for uh, coming in here and having some fun reviewing Lone Wolf and Cub. And folks, we would love to hear from you if you have read Lone Wolf and Cub or go on to read Lone Wolf and Cub. And once you're finished, please drop us a line. Leave us an email at kirbyskidspodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail on the Anchor app. And until next month, where we will be catching up yet still, reviewing the death of Superman along with Spawn Origins, we highly encourage you to hop on board Exploration Trail of ours and join us in our July read of Daredevil, Born Again, and also explore with us the origins of Iron Fist.